I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 10, The Foreign Devils. This has resulted in foreign ships continually coming to our coastal bays and foreigners residing together in our sub-prefectorial cities. Also, as the laws and the defenses have been neglected, these people have become increasingly familiar with the roots. These phalangi have taken advantage of this situation to rush here. The Annals of the Ming Dynasty, 1521. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. The Chinese looked at the newcomers with disdain. They were like any other barbarians, Persian, Indian, Arab, Mongol, who came to China to seek out rich silks and other treasures. They came in small wooden sailing ships that were dwarfed by the great treasure ships of Zhang He. They spoke a strange and mysterious language that could not be understood, and their origins were just as mysterious. In 1517, two worlds crashed into each other. The Portuguese arrival at the port of Guangzhou would be a crucial turning point in the history of both Europe and China. Up to that point, each had taken its path, but from that point forward, the history of both would be entangled and forever bound to each other. Both China and Europe had their self-perceptions of exceptionalism. Each thought their civilization was superior, better than all others. Outsiders, like the Mongols, had invaded China in the past. But these people often adopted Chinese culture and followed Chinese norms. Ultimately, they did not shatter China's worldview. The Portuguese, though, presented the Chinese with a whole new experience. The Portuguese had different concepts of trade and diplomacy. They, too, had an unfailing belief that their culture was more civilized and far superior. Whereas the Chinese wanted to impress, but not dominate the region, the Portuguese made no separation between war, power, and trade. Their goal was not to participate, but to control. For nearly a half century, the Chinese had locked themselves away behind the paranoia of the Ming Dynasty. They were never aware of who had come knocking on their doorstep. It was not so easy for the Portuguese. Initially, the Ming court did not view these strange newcomers as threatening. Tomé Pires, a former pharmacist, had been appointed by King Manuel I as envoy to the Ming court. The goal was to pay tribute to the emperor garner trading privileges like any other outsider, 
and seek access to Chinese markets. The Portuguese fleet had sailed from Malacca under the command of Fernão Perez de Andrade. They arrived in Guangzhou at an inopportune time. The Ming had been pursuing a policy limiting foreign trade, and the Portuguese found they were denied entrance to the harbor. They were not already a tribute state and had no right to trade. After a month of waiting, they were allowed to enter the port. Two blunders nearly changed the Chinese minds. Andrade had fired cannons in salute, which went against Ming protocol. Nor were the Ming happy about the Portuguese boasting about capturing Malacca, a former vassal state of China. But Andrade proved honest and diplomatic, and he smoothed over the misunderstandings. It helped that aging Emperor Zhengdo was more conciliatory towards foreigners than his immediate predecessors. Perez was recognized as an envoy and just needed to wait for permission to visit the emperor. Andrade, therefore, had made positive gains when he left in 1518. This was quickly undone by none other than his brother, Samao, who arrived in 1519. Samao did not have the tact of his brother. By contemporary accounts, he was pompous, arrogant, and spendthrift. He built a fort without permission, declared that no foreigner could trade ahead of him, and abused Ming officials. On top of this, he purchased Chinese children to act as servants. The Chinese were horrified by this, believing that the Portuguese were cannibals. This proved problematic for Perez as he finally arrived in Beijing. He found the Ming court was openly hostile to the Portuguese. The death of Zheng Do in 1521 meant the end of any hopes for negotiations. Perez was escorted out of Beijing. Sent back to Guangzhou, he was held hostage until the Portuguese restored the Sultan of Malacca. Perez would die in captivity in 1524. When the emperor died, all the ports were closed and foreigners were ordered to leave. The Portuguese refused, and a sizable Chinese fleet convinced them otherwise. In 1522, the Portuguese arrived once more to attempt peaceful trade relations. But this fleet was also met by Chinese war junks and suddenly defeated. The Portuguese would remain locked out for the next 30 years with no hope of gaining access to the main court. Barred from official trade, they spent those 30 years conducting an illicit trade that was just as lucrative. Several versions exist of what exactly changed the Chinese minds about the Portuguese. Sometime between 1555 and 1557, according to one version, the Portuguese rid the region of pirates, and the local elites of southern China saw there might be a use for them. They rewarded the Portuguese with a trading colony on the peninsula of Macau, located on the Pearl River Delta, about 62 miles from Guangzhou. 
Hong Kong is on the other side of the same estuary. Another view is that the Ming government wished to gain access to goods from East Africa and India. Therefore, the Portuguese were invited to set up a colony on the condition that no fortifications would be built. The Portuguese also saw an opportunity to establish a permanent settlement as a hub for trade with Indonesia and Japan. Leonel de Sousa, a Portuguese trader, is often credited with formally negotiating the Luso-Chinese Agreement that legalized commercial trade in exchange for taxes. The only written account of this is a letter from de Sousa himself to the infant Dom Luis, a son of King Manuel I. Within five years, Macau grew into a community of 900 Portuguese. Many Chinese viewed this community with suspicion. The strange people, the strange architecture, the strange customs, and the peculiar religious processions. They looked upon the Portuguese as foreign devils. The colony was outside the expected standards of Chinese trade and diplomacy. There was no formal relationship, and Macau continued to survive because it became profitable to the local merchants and officials, and it stayed also at the pleasure of the Chinese government. In case the Portuguese became troublesome, a wall and gate were constructed across the narrowest part of the peninsula in 1573. Portuguese were forbidden to cross this threshold. Little farmland had been enclosed, so the colony depended on the Chinese for food. If the Ming were displeased, they could close the gate, stop food supplies, and starve the colony into submitting to its will. And Macau's relationship with Portugal was different too. It existed through the efforts of traders, and later, missionaries, instead of warships. Because of this, it was not recognized as an official colony of the Portuguese crown. It was, by large part, self-governing. A governor was appointed to oversee military affairs, but a town council, chartered in 1583, had the power to legislate, oversee the colony's finances, and conduct diplomacy. Only the consul could deal directly with the Ming emperor and his representatives. While the Portuguese attempted to gain a foothold in China, they made another important contact. Three Portuguese mariners were aboard a Chinese junk bound for Ningpo, China. But the junk encountered a storm that blew them off course. They were shipwrecked on Tagagashima, an island at the western end of Japan. They were the first Europeans to come in contact with the Japanese. Japanese came to call the Portuguese Namban, or Southern Barbarian. At first, the Japanese were eager to welcome these newcomers. The Chinese had imposed a trade embargo with Japan at this time, and the Portuguese quickly filled the role of middleman. 
the Portuguese could obtain goods that the Japanese craved, silk, porcelain, and gold. In exchange, the Portuguese returned to China with copper, lacquerware, cabinets, swords, and other Japanese items in demand in Ming China. Silver, in particular, was a commodity that the Portuguese could get from Japan and was highly prized in China. This would set the foundation of the Namban trade, a network between Japan, China, Malacca, India, and Portugal. In 1550, the King of Portugal, John III, declared this trade a crown monopoly. Only ships authorized by officials in Goa could participate in this trade. Japan was fragmented into several feudal states led by a warlord, the daimyo. The daimyos fought amongst each other to gain power and influence over rivals. The Portuguese exploited the situation by currying favor with different daimyos, usually by supplying gunpowder firearms, which was novel to Japanese society. One of these was Amura Sumitara, a daimyo from Heizen in the northwestern part of Kyushu Island. In 1562, he pledged to convert to Christianity, which upset many of his Buddhist subjects. In 1571, Umura granted the Portuguese land in the small fishing village of Nagasaki. The grant was made specifically to the Portuguese Jesuit missionaries. Fearing the port would be taken by a rival, Umura ceded the entire city to the Jesuits. The Jesuits would govern the town while pledging allegiance to Umura. In this way, Nagasaki became much like Macau. Nagasaki became a base for merchants, missionaries, and immigrants. The port was the center of Jesuit missionary efforts in the Far East. After its establishment, one Karak vessel, dubbed the Great Ship, plied the waters between Macau and Nagasaki. This ship originated in Goa, and this continued until 1619, when it was substituted for a fleet of smaller vessels. Most residents were Japanese natives, who converted from Buddhism to Christianity. Portuguese traders were transient, only visiting for a short time for mercantile purposes. Unlike in other places, there was little interaction between the indigenous population and the Portuguese. Even intermarriages were few. By the end of the 16th century, the Portuguese monopoly over the Japanese trade was beginning to be challenged, first by Chinese pirates, and then by the Dutch and the English successively. But it would be the internal struggles of Japan that would shut the door on the Europeans. The emergence of the Tokugawa shogunate as a unified power in Japan shifted Japanese foreign policy. Foreigners were no longer trusted. By the 1640s, the shoguns would halt all trade and expel all foreigners, particularly Christians. In 
The Portuguese tried to send emissaries to negotiate a reopening of trade, but they were arrested, tried, and executed. Trade was never revived, and Japan entered a prolonged period of isolation known as the Sokoku period, chained off nation. This would not end until United States Admiral Matthew Perry sailed into Tokyo Harbor. By the mid-16th century, the Spanish had established themselves in the Americas. The Portuguese arrival in China and Japan was the final piece in creating a new age of globalization. The globe was directly connected via trade, politics, war, and cultural exchange for the very first time. But Europe itself, at the same time, was undergoing significant transformations. Some of these changes were aided by a technological innovation that appeared before both Columbus and the Gama, the printing press. In the next episode, we return to Europe and examine the printing press and its role in the information revolution. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History With My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. If you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thanks for listening.